Welcome to OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode 28. Oh my gosh, it's Martin Casado. What a surprise. Martin, good to see you. I tried to schedule an interview with you before, but it fell through. Happy to be here. So this kind of reminds me of XKCD163. It's like you're hat guy and I'm Knuth. Who are you? How did you get into my house? I think there's a bunch of analogies. That's a great one. Anyway, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. You caught me by surprise when I was recording anyway. So, what's up? You've been in Andreessen for about a year already. Does Open vSwitch come up once in a while? Let me kind of demonstrate how pervasive this is. From an infrastructure perspective, it's now becoming something that programmers program to. It's becoming an abstraction to programmers. So it's still important? You can't underscore this point enough. Okay, now I've had time to come up with a decent question. Does Open vSwitch need a community manager? That's an exceptional, exceptional question. But, you know, a community manager is great. A community manager is not going to drive adoption like the best engineer. Hey, uh, what, what is that on your phone? I'm running Pac-Man. Okay, okay, I can take a hint. The interview's over. Thanks for stopping by. This is so sweet. Seriously, like I've been waiting for this you know, moment all my life. Um, okay, thanks again. Okay, now that we're done with that, let me introduce the episode. This episode is an interview with Bruce Davey from VMware and Chandra Apana from Arista. We're talking about the OVSDB schema that can be used to control VXLAN support on switches from Arista and a wide variety of other vendors. Let's get right to it. Today we're talking about an open vSwitch database schema that can be used to control uh, VXLAN functionality in top of rack switches. Recently we published a paper in SIGCOM's Computer Communications Review on the schema and a lot of the work around it, so it seems like a good time to do a podcast about it. The OVSDB VTEP schema, as we often call it, goes back a few years and it's been integrated into the open vSwitch source tree since 2013, even though a lot of the work only has a passing relationship to open vSwitch. So with me today to talk about this, I have two of the experts who were involved in the whole design of OVSDB uh, VTEP. So first, I have Bruce Davey from VMware, uh, one of the lead designers of the schema and the lead author of the paper and the one who kept uh, pushing on the paper and eventually got it accepted. Well, we, we got uh, quite a bit of interesting uh, discussion from uh, various uh, conferences on it. Um, and a networking expert. Bruce, do you want to say anything more uh, about yourself or, or your background? Sure. I mean, I've been doing networking for a long time, uh, I guess going back almost 30 years at this point. And uh, I guess I've been involved in the SDN movement for about five or six years now. And uh, this was actually one of the first things that I worked on after joining Nasira in 2012. And then my other guest today is Chandra Apana, an engineer and a manager at Arista, uh, one of the companies that helped design the VTEP schema. Chandra has helped with the design of the VTEP schema from the start and continues to help design new feature enhancements into it, like support for micro-segmentation. He's also been driving the development and deployment of Arista's equipment that implements the VTEP schema. Do you want to say anything more about yourself and your background? Uh, well, I've not been in networking as long as Bruce, but I think I'm also... I also spent a decade and a half at least in networking and in fact Bruce and I have worked together for a long time I think. I got into the VTEP schema because we were doing a lot of work with VXLAN and since VXLAN was all about overlays, Desera and VMware were sort of the drivers in that space. It made a lot of sense to partner with someone who was basically at the forefront of uh, virtualization. Uh, and. It started around the time I joined Arista, in fact, and so it was also one of the first things I did outside of 
uh, Cisco and at Arista, and it's been a great ride so far. Great. I'm awfully glad to have both you and Bruce here to talk about it today. I feel like there's a lot of networking firepower in the room. I said a few words about what the VTEP schema does, but it probably didn't enlighten our listeners who don't already know what it does. You have a good high-level view of how companies actually use networking. Do either of you want to help explain what problem the VTEP schema actually helps people to solve? Yeah, I mean, I'll have a crack and, and feel free to jump in. Um, so, you know, basically the problem that we were looking for was we already had a system that knew how to build overlays between software switches. And we really wanted to have the ability to have a, mi a mixture of software and hardware switches in the, the overlay that we were building. And so we needed some way that the, uh, what was then called NVP, um, the network virtualization platform, we needed a way that that controller could communicate with a hardware switch to tell it exactly how to participate in the overlay. And so if effectively what we sort of discovered was there really wasn't a clear existing protocol that we could use to, to have that communication with a hardware switch. And uh, we can maybe talk more later about sort of all the different options we considered, but the high level problem we, we were going after was how do you build a, an overlay for the purposes of, of building virtual networks that includes a mixture of software switches and hardware switches at the edge of that overlay. So uh, just to drill in on that a little bit more, Nasira was very oriented around software switching and, and doing things at the hypervisor. So why was it that we also wanted to integrate hardware switches? So primarily from our perspective, it was that the when you're communicating with, say, a virtual machine, then the natural way to build the overlay is to talk to the vSwitch that's right next to that virtual machine. But the world does not only consist of virtual machines, and so when you need to build an overlay that can communicate with, say, a non-virtualized workload running you know, in a mainframe or a bare metal workload or something like that, or if you just need to handle north-south traffic that's coming in or out of your data center, then you need some way to get traffic sort of from the physical world into the virtual world. And at the time, the only option that we had was to run a uh, software switch in an x86 appliance, which was adequate for some use cases, but creates a certain level of anxiety for traditional networking people who don't sort of expect an x86 box to be part of their network. And also, um, you know, in spite of all the improvements that have been made in forwarding performance for x86, it's still not anything close to the level that you can get from switch ASICs. And so, you know, the idea of having a um, high performance hardware-based forwarding engine that could be bringing traffic in and out of the virtual overlay um, obviously had a lot of attraction for, uh, for a certain set of use cases. Sure. So performance, port density perhaps, and you might say adding the level of indirection that for a VM you would get from the hypervisor. That's right. It, it's effectively your, you know, your, your network virtualization overlay has to have a set of edged edges to that overlay and you kind of want to pick those edges based on what sits behind those edges. And so in the hypervisor, it makes perfect sense to use a vSwitch. For other things, there's kind of more options you want to consider. So uh, Chandra, do you want to add something from your point of view or Aristos? I would add only a couple of things. I think uh, my perspective is more from the side of the uh, vendors that actually have been building the networking hardware that Bruce mentioned. I've been associated with quite a few virtualization efforts in the networking industry. And for me, so it has felt like a journey. Uh, we've tried a few things in the past, and I think uh, what I ended up realizing is uh, this solution ended up being a nice approach where we actually bridged the virtualization world that 
VMware and server virtualization created and situations where networking hardware was still essential to the packet path. Um, other efforts I had seen in the past were either all based on networking hardware or all based on just virtualization in the x86 servers and neither of those I think went so far. Uh, this one sort of took a different approach, and that's what I at least noticed about this. Yeah, that's a good observation, actually, that, that you know, and like you, I sort of came from a more traditional networking background where everything in the world was a router, and you just figured out how to interconnect them. And this one, you know, we had essentially a very strong sort of distributed systems software team in Nasira and then at VMware, and so this really was a collaboration between people who were more kind of systems type people with sort of more traditional networking. And I think that was, as you say, probably led to some of the sort of different design decisions we made, but also I think helped it be successful. And, and not to plug the company I work for, but oh, at, Arista, <laughs> I think, at Arista, I think we were extremely open to accommodating the ways in which the networking and the virtualization industries were coming together and evolving. Uh, we kind of accepted that from the beginning and we wanted to figure out how to participate and help the movement versus just sticking to a more traditional view. So I'm curious about something you said a, a little bit earlier about uh, uh, different projects for virtualization in, in networking. So it's just kind of a digression. I'm, I'm curious, uh, what, uh, what, what do you consider uh, examples? I mean, uh, the a word virtual appears in a few places like VLAN and VXLAN. The first word is virtual or some form of that. Um, is that the sort of thing you were thinking of? Or did you mean a, a connection to something like, uh, uh, to, to, to something like a hypervisor? No, actually, I was talking about network virtualization in the sense of we've had a lot of big customers all over the world uh, who have always wanted to use the same physical infrastructure but create truly virtual networks on top of them. And when they talk about virtual networks, these customers want real isolation. They want security. They want quality of service guarantees. And they've always asked for this, but I think as an industry, we haven't figured out how to build cost-effective solutions for these things. And that's why nobody has deployed real solutions uh, in that context. And so I was talking more about that. Like, I mean, there have been efforts to just build virtual networks end-to-end, -end, but if they're not plugged into the virtualization on the server side, I think it only goes so far. And then you have to come up with very complex mechanisms to map one to the other. Uh, even VXLAN was sort of part of this movement for me, right? VXLAN happened only recently relative to, I mean, a lot of other stuff in networking. Yeah, you could also argue that you know, something like MPLS VPNs were an ex a sort of an example at sort of virtualizing the network. But one of the things that I realized when I, when I came to Nasira was that um, when you look at how compute virtualization works, the virtualization is complete. It's that, that a, a virtual machine is a perfect replica of a physical machine. It has every attribute. It has the same instruction set. It has address spaces. It has I/O. Everything that you expect to find in a physical machine exists in a virtual machine. Such a, a sort of complete reproduction that you can take an OS that would run on a physical machine and run it in a VM, and the OS doesn't actually know that it's not running on physical. We never did anything like that in networking until the sort of the, the network virtualization. Um, capabilities that Nasira came up with were, were, were sort of invented. And you know, if you can't contrast that against what we did with MPLS VPNs, we basically virtualized sort of routing tables. That was about the extent. So we, it was almost, it's, I like sort of make the analogy, it's kind of like, we, you know, we know how to virtualize, say, address spaces in computing, but nobody would, would claim that simply having you know, virtual addressing is the same as having a virtual machine. 
And I think the same is true with MPLS VPNs. You kind of get a virtual address space, but you don't get a complete virtual network. Sure. Um, although, uh, and well, okay. Well, one thing to that I personally want to add to that is that the places where network virtualization falls down are in fact the ones that cause a lot of trouble in deployment. And the biggest one that comes to my mind is MTU issues. Mm -hmm. That uh, since your virtualized networks often have a smaller MTU than your uh, physical networks, that causes all kinds of problems in, uh, in deployment and even thinking about uh, the, the problems. When we were at Nasera and we were building NVP and so on, we really were trying to focus on programmable switches. And on hypervisors, we used OpenVSwitch. So why not use OpenFlow for uh, doing the, the sort of thing that the VTEP schema uh, does? Or, or why not even use it to uh, do everything that, that we can do on the, uh, on the software platforms? Yeah, so I mean, on this one, we had sort of the benefit of a couple of failed experiments. Um, at least I benefited from other people having had done failed experiments, I guess, um, you know, which is that you know, a couple of attempts had been made to use OpenFlow to directly control third-party hardware. And you know, there were chipsets out there that could support OpenFlow. But you know, I think what the Nasira team learned through doing this was that the, the capabilities of a particular OpenFlow switch chip would be typically very limited to the capabilities of a software switch. And so while in principle it seemed attractive that you could use the same protocol to control either a virtual switch or a physical switch, in reality, the difference in capabilities between the virtual switch and the physical switch was so vast that you ended up having to understand a whole lot of details about the physical switch before you could send that a single open flow rule. And what that meant was that you had essentially no abstraction at all, that your centralized controller instead of having like an abstract view of the network where it could push state out to either a virtual switch or a physical switch, now I had to have this very concrete view of the network where it said, well, there's software switches here and they can do a bunch of stuff. And then there's physical switches here, which can do considerably less stuff. So anytime I try to create a virtual network that sort of straddles the physical and the virtual, I'm gonna to have to do some pretty complex mapping from the kind of abstract state that I'm trying to create to the low level capabilities that I find out there. So it was effectively a sort of failed attempt to abstract away the hardware. Um, and then, you know, even worse, if you start then incorporating, say, capabilities from multiple different vendors, then every vendor has their own unique set of limitations in the hardware, each of which now gets exposed up into the centralized controller. So you're bringing just a massive amount of complexity into the controller to deal with the fact that you haven't successfully abstracted away the low-level details. Um, so one way of thinking about this is that what OpenFlow does is it gives you effectively like a machine language interface to a, a switching data path, but it doesn't provide any of the abstraction of a high-level language. And consequently, you expose all that low-level grunge to the person who's developing the, the high-level abstractions in the controller, and that's just a, a terrible way to build a system. And do you have a, a point of view, uh, maybe on uh, will switches become more programmable? Will that become more uh, viable in the future? Right. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think uh, this topic actually brings in a lot of uh, uh, issues into focus, right? I, I mean, how do you innovate in an industry which is also uh, in production, right? Uh, meaning, I mean, lots of companies depend on networking, they depend on virtualization, right? And uh, they've built real businesses around it. So 
I mean, having them replace everything they already have is not an acceptable idea. So I, I think the challenge always has been, you know, networking like anything else has always, I mean, the holy grail is always full programmability. But just like everything else, ASICs have limitations in terms of resources and speeds and how many transistors you can put on them and how complex you can make an ASIC in any given decade or year. And networking also has like tons of packet path technologies, right? And lots of them are very deployed. So you, you have to figure out a way in which you can sort of use that but not have to respin every ASIC for the next decade and then wait for them to settle down. So I, I, I think what happened with VXLAN was it ended up being a nice protocol, right, uh, which could get implemented in existing ASICs. It wasn't perfect, but I think it was good enough for the main problem that needed to be solved. And on top of that, the VTAP schema ended up modeling an end-to-end -end virtual network in a fairly simple fashion, right? It was not as uh, full-featured as OpenFlow, for example, where you can touch any bit and do anything you like, but it modeled a virtual network end-to-end -end with fairly strong abstractions that are applicable across the industry, independent of which vendor you speak to. And I think that was very powerful in helping push the core innovative idea, which was, look, we want virtualization to be integrated. It shouldn't be either just a server thing or a network thing. And so we gave up like maybe some open flow advantages, but I think as a consequence, we got an end-to-end -end solution which could be built and deployed. We gave up uh, generality to some extent for a specific application, but I feel like we chose a fairly useful application in that it's not just VMware's products that have been using it. I know of at least two or three uh, products that are unrelated to VMware and where, in fact, the authors never actually came to us and, and asked any questions, which either means that it was so simple or so well documented or, or some combination that, it, uh, that they, they found it usable. And I think the same has happened on like the vendor hardware implementation end, uh, where multiple vendors have been able to uh, implement it uh, more or less independently. Yeah, and I think you know that's a great sort of proof point of, of how we got a few things right. And I do think it, it had a lot to do with the fact that we abstracted away a lot of the low-level detail of what was going on in the hardware, and we used abstractions that were pretty general that could be implemented in, by a lot of different hardware. So you know, we knew that there was lots of hardware out there that could do the basic capabilities that you needed to build virtual networks backed by VXLAN. And so we sort of the abstractions that we started thinking about before we even settled on using OVSDB, we knew that we needed to have this ability to say, traffic that comes in on this physical port is gonna get mapped into a particular logical switch, and that logical switch is gonna get backed by a particular VXLAN ID. And so those are the kind of the pieces of information that we knew had to be conveyed in the protocol, and we kind of focused on identifying those abstractions before we started trying to figure out how we were gonna put the bits on the wire. And, and I think that, that really made a huge difference. Okay, let's shift focus here just a little bit. We keep referring to this as a database schema, but at a high level, what do databases actually have to do with, with VXLAN or, or networking? It's pretty uncommon to use databases for uh, basic networking, and so why is this special? Why, why did we use a database uh, uh, to define what a, a network device should do? 
Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of, I mean, there was a bit of expediency here, but I also think, sort of looking back on it now, it, it feels like a, a brilliant design choice. Even at the time, I think you know we might have just sort of stumbled onto it with a bit of luck. But you know, as I was just saying a minute ago, the first thing we did was we said, let's not have an argument about how we're going to put bits on the wire. Let's figure out what are the basic sets of information that we need to be able to exchange between the uh, between the controller and the hardware switches. And so, you know, we actually remember having a document that showed like what all the tables were going to look like that had to be exchanged between the controller and and the hardware switches. And when we looked at that and said, well, there's you know a set of tables you need to have over here and a set of tables you need to have over there, we said, you know, this actually looks a little bit like a, a database problem. And you know, as it happened, we already had an implementation of OVSDB in the Nasira controller that at the time was only used for configuration of software switches. It wasn't really used for sort of the, the same kind of things that we were thinking about doing, but it was implemented and it had a lot of properties that we realized could be useful in this environment. And so we sort of looked at, at what we were doing and said, well, we've got to exchange state between these, these two endpoints or between really a large set of endpoints. And we already have a protocol that we kind of know works it's already implemented, and by the way, it's open source. So maybe we can figure out a way to leverage that rather than say going and trying to shove this into BGP, or rather than trying to go and uh, you know cook up some brand new protocol, which we then have to implement and get all of our friends to agree to implement. And so it, you know, I think there was a little bit of like, well, this is, you know, here's a tool that's sort of lying in our toolkit. Let's try to use it. But it was also because we spent so much time thinking about the information model, we kind of realized, well. You know, like many problems in networking, this is really a state synchronization problem, and that's kind of what database protocols do. So let's see if the one that we've got can be made to work. And I do remember um, having a conversation with with you, Ben, about you know, you know, since you're the author of the original OVSDB implementation, like, do you think this implementation will will hold up to this level of usage? Because we're going to take it in a direction that it hasn't been used before. So we we certainly knew that you know, with, with any networking protocol, you have to think about you know performance and scalability. Um, and so, you know, in part, I think we, we knew that we were pushing the boundaries a little bit, but we also thought, well, you know, we, we give it a try. And if we find some performance issues, maybe we have some idea on how to go and tackle them. Uh, yeah. And I, I did end up making some changes to OVSDB to improve the, the performance uh, with this particular use case. Chandra, I didn't realize this at the time, but but later on, I saw a presentation on the architecture of Arista switches, and it looked to me like there could be drawn some analogies between the architecture of the switches and the, the architecture of how this schema works. Do you see an analogy there? And Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I think when, as a vendor, we are making a choice of whether we want to take on something brand new like this. I think a couple of things that go through our mind are, usually related to, look, is this a real problem we are solving and will it get deployed soon enough, right? Uh, I mean, it's very challenging for a smart but a small company like Arista, especially back in 2012, to take on something that might take five years before we see any real deployment, right? And so that's usually a big question in our minds. And yes, I mean, our architecture was built on the con around the concept of state synchronization, so we were very familiar with that concept. Further, I think it was very smart of you guys to actually provide this OVSDB server that we could run on our switch. Now, clearly, uh, 
not only were we built around the concepts of state synchronization, we also are a very modern operating system based switch uh, OS. So we have Linux, so we can just run a Linux process and that makes it very straightforward for us. But, you know, it enabled us to focus on the problem we wanted to solve, which is how do we link ports on Arista switches to VXLAN VNIs and uh, install all the reachability that comes in through the controller, right? Now, we could focus on that versus figuring out how to build all the protocol machinery because all we had to do was install handlers for the OVSDB endpoints, right? And we were very familiar with how to do JSON RPC. Uh, you guys had some libraries and we did experiment with multi-threading, single threading, what are the best ways to interact with the server. But I did hear a lot of questions around scalability and will it perform and all that. And I guess I have a slightly different view. I've always felt that, you know, if you solve the problem which ends up uh, being interesting to customers, there's always enough opportunity to take the implementation down the line, right? And this got us to that point. And I never really thought so much about the fact that it's a database versus not in BGP. I think Bruce and I can give you stories on even with BGP today, there are still academic discussions around why is it around TCP? And if you went and talked to Kirk and Yaakov, they'll tell you that, look, we just found that to be the easiest way to solve the problem we needed to solve. And BGP is very successful, right, today. I think OVSDB is the same thing. I find that it might have been even a better choice in hindsight. I don't know if you guys realized it, because the VTEP schema models an end-to-end -end overlay. It's not just exchanging reachability information, and it's also not solving the problem where links are flapping all the time, right? A lot of the networking protocols are structured around how can I react quickly to a change and distribute it across the network. But I think with virtualization, it's around, look, I want to set up everything and then probably the first packet will flow, right? So I feel there is a big difference in uh, what needs to be optimized in these two worlds. Yeah. And therefore, OVSDB, I feel, is quite suitable for it. Now, I didn't look at alternatives but I don't see too many faults with this choice. Actually, that raises a question in my mind. If we hadn't used a database, what, what would the natural design be? Would BGP be the choice? No, I can actually speak to that a little bit. I think a lot of customers over the years I've seen do some of these kinds of things with homegrown scripts because they are setting up end-to-end -end networks, right? So they will go tweak a switch here, they'll go tweak the server there, and there is no protocol available for that they all would like something, but there's nothing. And you know, BGP has been a very successful kitchen sink in a lot of ways, but I think the IETF would have gone bonkers if we had discussed this idea there. Basically, I want to carry orchestration information in BGP. Yeah, why not? But people would go, how is this related to reachability distribution, right? Yeah. Although, I mean, to, to make the sort of counter argument, people have certainly proposed all kinds of information to be carried in BGP over the years. And uh, um, there was a, uh, a, a person I worked with at Cisco who was getting upset about all the stuff that we were doing with BGP. And uh, 
the you know he said it's kind of like you've got this brake fluid that you use in your car to like stop the car and it, you know you realize after a while actually this brake fluid gets pretty hot so I could do other things with it I could actually start like piping it through the seats to warm the seats up in winter and uh, you know and you start thinking yeah but do you really want to start using something that was intended to stop the car do you want to use that to like heat up the seats as well and that's kind of I think one of the things that happened with BGP was like oh wow you can distribute all kinds of information in BGP we can put MPLS labels in it you know we can put Ethernet addresses in it you know all of a sudden it's like BGP or it almost became the sort of standard way of exchanging state across big networks. But, you know, it, it has all kinds of, of drawbacks for the kind of application that we were thinking of, um, you know, including the fact that, like, you know, the convergence is, uh, properties are kind of, you know, hard to understand. Not, not, not that this convergence is bad. It's just like, could you tell me how quickly this BGP network is going to converge? Well, maybe if you're an expert in BGP and you study everything, you could, but it's pretty, you know, there's so many random variables. Could you tell me if you accidentally introduced a loop into BGP? It's like, well, yeah, again, if you've been studying it for 10 years, maybe. But so um, so I think the, the, you know, I did look at BGP as kind of probably the most natural alternative to what we did with OVSDB. And then I would have said probably the sort of the third alternative would have been to go and cook a protocol from scratch um, because, you know, sort of back in the early MPLS days, we pretty much, anytime we had to distribute some information, we'd always kind of weigh up the two options. You know, option A is shove it in a protocol that already exists, and option B is create a new protocol. And in the end, we did a bit of both over the, over the years, with things like LDP being the new protocol for label distribution, but also label distribution got shoved into PGP. So um, so I think we, we could have gone a number of different ways. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think turned out really well given the choice that we made, was that we already had a state synchronization model already cooked as part of OVSDB. And that turns out to be one of the things that you end up inventing over and over and over again when you do network protocols is, you know, we, we, you've, there's, one, there's a state synchronization model for BGP, there's a different one for OSPF, there's a different one for LDP. And, and so, you know, it's actually really incredibly helpful to just have state synchronization as a primitive in your protocol before you've exchanged any information. And that's what I think OVSDB does is like the basic thing that it does is it says, I want to have two tables that are synchronized between these two entities. And given that I want to do that, I, the code is already there to do those do that. So now I can just read and write those tables independently on you know, at different locations and know that they're going to stay in sync across the, those two locations. Okay, so we've now pointed out the, uh, the good points of databases for networking. Do we think that that means that databases should be more generally used or more generally considered? Are they something that, that have, have we demonstrated that, that they're uh, useful and will people think about them more? Well, I think we've definitely shown that they're useful. Um, <clears throat> I think it would be a very big uphill battle to get the networking industry as a whole to go down this path more broadly. You know, I think one of the, the challenges with networking is how difficult it is to displace legacy. And, you know, at, at this point, you know, there's probably some, you know, some ATM networks kicking around somewhere and, and there's, you know, definitely frame relay networks kicking around. There's probably X25 networks kicking around. So it's really hard to displace legacy and, and BGP, you know, people might be offended if I call it legacy, but it's, it's going to be really hard to get rid of BGP because it's basically, it's the, it's the protocol on which the business of being an ISP effectively depends that you know, there's actually a tight coupling between how money flows between ISPs and how routes flow between ISPs. And so it's really hard to see how that would get displaced. That said, I, I do think part of the reason we wrote this paper was to show people 
how powerful it could be to apply effectively a systems approach to to building a new protocol um, that was based around database synchronization in the hope that the next time somebody's cooking a new protocol, they might look at this as, as a feasible approach. I, I don't think anybody was saying that uh, you shouldn't use BGP for what BGP was originally intended for. Actually, I am saying that, but... Oh, oh, you, oh you are. I think that would well. be another discussion. Uh, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about that, but this is probably not the time. A big part of this paper was uh, about the, the process of developing the VTEP schema. It was developed almost like a kind of a open source project. And in fact, after a little bit of cooking in private, it actually became part of the uh, Open vSwitch uh, open, open source project. And then uh, a bunch of hardware vendors uh, came on board uh, in addition to the ones that were, uh, were there as we uh, developed it. Um, and you can kind of uh, contrast that against the typical IETF process for designing and uh, distributing and developing a, a new standard. I actually know very little about that IETF process because I, I haven't actually been involved in it personally. So I'd like to hear some opinions here on uh, what, what are the pluses and minuses of each and, and how, how should they influence each other, uh, what, whatever your thoughts are. So, I mean, I have a... I've always felt that even in the IETF, the successful efforts usually happened in a very similar fashion. Three or four individuals who really wanted to solve a problem got together, did something that actually worked. It wasn't perfect. They chose their shades of blue that they liked versus what someone else would have chosen, but it worked. And then because it worked and uh, customers ended up really liking it, others just said, okay, maybe we can tweak it a little bit here and a little bit there. But I think over the years, the ITF has suffered the price of its own success. I would say it just got too big and too successful. And now there are lots of situations where, of course, this is my personal opinion, there are lot of situa lots of situations where 15 engineers will try to get together and come up with something. And as the saying goes in the computer science industry, when you're designed by committee, it's always very challenging. So to me, this felt more familiar in terms of this is how the IETF has always tried to do things, working code and rough consensus. And that's what happened in this case, right? It solved a real problem. There were enough vendors interested in it. Uh, Nisera slash VMware kind of spearheaded it, but they built something that others wanted to participate in. And of course, we all gave in a lot of inputs and the model does definitely make a lot of sense to the hardware vendors. And that's why it succeeded because we built things in stages. We didn't try to make a perfect solution on day one. And we actually built working code, right? I feel, I mean, that's how I look at it. I mean, so I don't find it a severe contrast to how the ITF still wants to do stuff, but yeah, sometimes it doesn't happen like that. It, it sounds like really it worked out the way an IATF process should work and uh, in the best case does. Yes. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I mean, I, I've certainly got a little bit jaundiced with the IETF in recent years, but uh, it is absolutely true that if you look at the successful things there, it was often the case that a pretty small group of people did a design and then they, they brought it to the, 
to, to a working group and, you know, those people could make the case that this was a good design and maybe a few tweaks happened and then, you know, the ITF standardized it. I think what has gone wrong in recent years at the ITF is that there's often a, a reluctance to, to accept a design that might have been cooked up by a small group and, and standardize it, that instead the ITF will say, well, we should go and do a requirements process and that takes a year or two and then we should do an architecture and that takes a year or two and then you get a 15-person design team and that takes another few years and meanwhile the world has moved on. Um, so, I mean, I think we're still waiting for a, a control protocol for the NVO3 working group at this point, right? And, you know, meanwhile, we, we've got one that works for, for solving pretty much that problem. You know, I, I also, I like the John Postel quote about the IETF. Um, and for those who don't know, John Postel was the original editor of the RFC series. And uh, this quote, if I can remember it correctly, was roughly that when the very early days of the IETF, when they were trying to design all these protocols, there was this sense that there was this big design space and they were sort of picking a very carefully defined path through that very large design space. And that then he said, what's going on in the IETF today is they're filling in all the remaining blank space in that design space. Um, and so the, you know, the sort of sense that the IETF used to make very, very careful choices of what not to do, whereas now it's just like, oh, we're just gonna do everything. Yeah, you know, I'd say there's still plenty of good stuff being done there, um, but I think it's it's certainly gotten gotten slowed down um, you know, by a number of factors, not least of which is the, just the sheer size of and you know, number of people who show up. Okay, we've talked a lot about OBSDB VTEP and what it's for and how it accomplishes it. We haven't covered very much of a contrast with other solutions that solve the same problem and maybe the, the, the differences and why you might use one or the other. Um, d does anyone want to give an opinion on that? I'm personally not aware of any solution that solves the same problem. I think they try to solve similar problems, but not the same problem. Uh, and I have realized this more and more as we've built more stuff with the OVSDB uh, VTAP schema, is that I think the end-to-end -end orchestration modeling has not been solved by any other protocol so far. Uh, there is reachability exchange, right? Uh, how do I reach a MAC address or how do I reach a IP destination? But nobody has solved the problem of Look, how do I create an end-to-end -end virtual network where there are some number of ports on physical switches and some number of ports on virtual switches? How do I create an orchestrated network where I can uh, configure filters on those ports, which is what we've been calling as micro-segmentation. So there is no model out there for this. I think there are scripts within data centers or service provider operators uh, that sort of do it for what they would like to do, but there is no complete model that I'm aware of. Yeah, I think that there's no direct competitor. I think you, you could probably make the case that to some extent OpenFlow does similar things and has largely failed to do it for reasons we discussed earlier. Um, and that it's very hard today to find a successful deployment of OpenFlow where the controller and the hardware were developed by different people. And I think the, you know, that's the area where I think we had huge success here was to have a controller developed by VMware um, and hardware developed by half a dozen different vendors all interoperating. Um, so I think that's that's an area where OpenFlow has kind of tried and failed to do something similar. And then I think you'd probably say some people would claim that they can build a similar kind of thing with some BGP capabilities like you know EVPN, for example. And again, I sort of get back to my point earlier about the difference between true network virtualization versus just doing kind of address space virtualization. Um, that you know, if you actually want to build a virtual network, you need to virtualize a lot of things. And that's one of the things that we can do in, with this approach. Whereas if you, if you simply want to build basically like an L2 overlay using EVPN, 
then you can probably do that between a mix of, of hardware and software switches. Um, but it's it's kind of a very different operational model and it's a different level of virtualization to what we have here. So yeah, I, I would kind of agree with there's really no sort of exact com, you know, um, competitor to this that's had, that's had the same success. So also uh, as VMware, we were very much focused on our own use case, uh, but have, have you at Arista as a hardware vendor, have you found that uh, that this schema addresses uh, other use cases that, that maybe we weren't thinking right. about? Right, I mean, as an engineer, when I'm building stuff, I'm always looking for, look, can I build something and use it in different situations? And from a vendor's perspective, different situations would be working with different vendors, uh, different partners, or with uh, different customer scenarios where they might be wanting to create their own vision of what their virtual network needs to look like. And especially what's happening today as uh, data centers are evolving. I think there are lots of companies who are building data centers who are also at the forefront of how they think about how a data center should be built. So a lot of them are experimenting with models, saying, oh, I want this to happen, I want that to happen, I want this port to be associated with this VNI in this way. Can you do ARP suppression in this fashion? And what I think has worked for us is I have been able to successfully apply the use of the OVSDB hardware VTAP schema underneath to satisfying these customers' requirements. Oh, great. Like, I mean, they'll send it through some API and I'll turn around and say, look, if you can tweak your thinking a little bit here and there, you know what, underneath I can build the solution for you very quickly because what am I doing? I'm turning around and making the OVSDB cuttle commands and basically populating the VTAP schema. And I have the machinery already to understand what to do with those. Uh, database uh, directives. So in that sense, it's been kind of useful for us because I think it models a very nice, reasonable virtual network. Have you found cases where if you added one straightforward feature or, or, or two straightforward features to the schema, then it would solve a, a much wider set of use cases? So certainly, I think VMware and Arista have worked very closely together and we have certainly brought quite a few things to VMware where we've said, hey Bruce, hey Anupam, can we basically tweak the schema like this? And a lot of times I think we've been successful, especially where we've been able to articulate it well in terms of, look, this model would be useful. We've got things into the schema. Like I think uh, the ability to report errors was one thing yeah. we worked on, uh, which didn't exist in the schema for whatever reason. Now, our point was, look, do you realize that, you know, uh, hardware might run out of resources or we may not be able to uh, accept a directive on a switch because it's running an older version of the software. Uh, then when we were building the whole L3 model, we did quite a few interesting things, right? Uh, when we were basically modeling BFD, we had a major discussion around what should be the destination MAC address of these BFD packets. Should we use VNI0, right? Uh, those were all yeah. outcomes of things we were sort of figuring out on our side, on the inside of the company, and we were able to have extremely good discussions and sort of uh, enhance the model to make it more generally applicable. Yeah, I think there's another interesting point there too, which is that this particular approach to, to sort of designing the control protocol between different entities in a network system, I don't think I've ever seen anything that was as easy to extend as OVSDB. It's like, it's just extremely obvious when you want to add some capability, the first thing you do is you think about what's the information that I need to exchange between the controller and, and the switch, or what has to be exchanged between switches, perhaps. 
and and then once you ha once you've kind of got that model in mind it's very straightforward to go and say oh well, can we add a new table or we add a, a new row into an existing table and and so the extensibility is is just it's really incredible i don't think i've ever felt that i worked with any protocol that was this easy to extend and and in a way that's pretty clean like you don't find yourself like sort of doing unnatural acts to, to get a new capability into into the schema oh that's good to hear so one of the big question marks we had when we were designing the thing is would the performance and scale of OVSDB uh, limit the system in practice? Uh, does anybody have any information on whether that's been a problem? I think we've done some work with scaling. I think uh, we've certainly encountered a few things, but uh, I believe maybe about eight months ago there were some enhancements to OVSDB which made, uh, made it perform much better. but. At the same time, I don't believe we've hit real limits in real networks yet. I think the time will come, uh, but we don't have networks with like 10,000 VMIs. Right, right. So I think it's a problem that might need to be solved down the line. But for what we need to do right now, I feel it's quite fine. Yeah, and we did a pretty um, ambitious amount of, of scale testing before we certified the product for release. Um, and so we, you know, we have a pretty pretty large scale test lab here at VMware that we we used, where I think I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was you know many thousands of, of MAC addresses, maybe tens of thousands of MAC addresses that would flap up and down to uh, to sort of see well what effect does that have when you have to suddenly you know update ten thousand MAC addresses in one one table update. And so things like that did get tested pretty well. And there's just a lot of things that have to happen in these kind of distributed systems when you, you deal with things like, you know, cold restart or, you know, complete failover of a controller or something. And so in general, dealing with scale of the controller is sort of it's part of our bread and butter in building these kind of systems. And I didn't feel like OVSDB added a lot of additional stress compared to the things we normally have to worry about. I mean, I would add one more thing, which I think I just realized I did not mention. One of the things we added into the schema very early on was this notion of a hardware switch controller, uh, where we were able to front a lots of Arista switches behind one uh, speaker that ends up interacting with the controller. And I, I feel, at least initially when we did a lot of testing, that gave us extremely good results because we could build a lot of scale enhancing features into the HSE and thereby not burden the controller itself. Does that add an additional point of failure across several switches? So it can potentially add another point of failure, but it has all the HA capabilities that sort of the controller has. It has the ability to have a cluster with a quorum election for the follower and the leader and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we have it covered. I mean, it has all the high availability that we need. But at the same time, it also allows us to model very interesting uh, concepts that our customers like to work with, like MLAG, for example, right? Uh, otherwise, the controller would have to understand how MLAG works. And because we had this additional uh, entity in the control plane path, uh, we could basically hide all those details from the controller and make it just look like another switch to the controller. Well, that sounds like a, a great design from the perspective of, of everybody who's working on the controller side. So uh, what's the future of the schema? We've talked about features that have been added. Is there anything that's uh, being cooked up right now that anybody wants to talk about? 
Well, I think, you know, at this point, the, the schema itself is a little bit ahead of our implementation. And so, you know, we've got uh, things like ACL configuration that's in there today and, and L3 distributed routing that's there today that we haven't really got a full implementation of yet. So we've definitely got some work to do just to bring our implementation up to, to what's in the schema. But I think there's probably more interest in doing things on the on the sort of the security front um, you know, to, to maybe have more capabilities to do things like micro-segmentation in, you know, when the hardware is in the picture. Um, you know, part of the challenge here too is that anytime you want to add something to the schema, you kind of want to make sure that you're not suddenly exposing a very unique hardware capability that won't be available broadly. Um, so, you know, just to sort of look backwards a little bit, when we did the, the addition of ACL configuration into the schema, you know, we pretty carefully looked at kind of what's possible on a wide range of different types of switch hardware to make sure we weren't just going to go and bake in something that was extremely Arista specific, say, into the into the schema. So I think that's kind of our general principle going forward. Is you know, as we see things that we need to do, we'll we'll certainly want to add more capabilities, but we also want to make sure we don't um, do anything that's not sort of broadly supported across a wide range of hardware. On the OVSDB side itself, we're adding some uh, additional features and uh, possibly scale and performance uh, uh, type work on the OVSDB server, uh, mainly focused on OVN, but, but perhaps some of those will also benefit the uh, VTEP uh, implementations. Is there anything else that either of you wants to add? Well, I, I guess I, I think this has been a great discussion. I, I think. Um, you know, we did go into a lot of detail about all the gory, um, you know, gory detail of experiences that we had um, with building the system um, in our paper. So um, hopefully we can give a link to the paper in the, uh, in the podcast notes. And, you know, I guess if you're just trying to use Google, you should be able to probably search for, search for my name and, and Chandra's name and a paper in a CCR, Computer Communications Review. But the people who really want to go into the, you know, all the depths, um, that's, the, uh, that's the place to go. Yeah, I'll definitely add a link to it from the show notes. From my side... Uh I think, yeah, I think it was a great discussion. We covered a lot of ground. I think in terms of the future, yeah, it would be exciting to see the L3 parts of the schema get deployed. I think uh, the micro-segmentation stuff might happen sooner uh, because it looks like there's a lot of interest around uh, the security aspects of overlays. I think the next few years will be more about deployment, and I'm really looking forward to that because that would be an awesome success, right? to see a lot of deployment and, you know, this actually being used across data centers in the world. Well, it sounds like that's a, a great place to leave the, the discussion. Uh, do either of you want to say what's the best way that people can uh, contact you with, with feedback or, or questions? So uh, my email is achandra at arista.com, so I'm happy to receive emails there. LinkedIn is a great way to get in touch with me. My contact information is on there, too. Great. And Bruce? People should tweet to me. I'm underscore Dr. Bruce D. All right. I'll, I'll make sure uh, that, uh, that, that people know to tweet to you. All right. Thank you both. Okay. Thank Thanks. you. OBS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.